Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer sharing stories, experiences, and insights to nourish the feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its longstanding cultural repression. Join me each episode as I explore themes and archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance between the archetypal feminine and masculine. On this Take It to Therapy mini-sode, I'm asking, can we experience archetypes without becoming them? Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace them for a proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. While this information is generalized, it is not inclusive of all experiences and perspectives. In this context, feminine and masculine are used to describe archetypal elements akin to yin and yang and are not descriptive of gender or gender roles. And now, without further ado, let's jump into this episode of Feed the Feminine. So these Take It to Therapy minisodes are meant to invite self-exploration through curiosity in bite-sized chunks so that you can, well, take it to therapy and see what arises. So can we experience archetypes without becoming them? Depending on your understanding of archetypes, you may see that question as inherently flawed. So let's unpack it. First, let's answer another question, the obvious one. What are archetypes? I'm starting basic here with a quick poll from Wikipedia before we dig in deeper to some other resources. Archetypes are universal inherited ideas, patterns of thought, or images present in the collective unconscious of all human beings. The psychic counterpart of instinct. Archetypes are thought to be the basis of many of the common themes and symbols that appear in stories, myth, and dreams across different cultures and societies. Now that's not bad for something that can feel really hard to define in limiting human English words, (laughs) but it always brings up this hiccup what is the collective unconscious? So really quickly, Carl Jung, psychiatrist, mystic, the man who westernized or masculinized many Eastern or feminine beliefs, for better or worse, he spoke of the individual conscious, thoughts, emotions, memories known to us and based on our individual experiences, like I'm depressed and I know it, I have this memory and I know it. That's the ego. He spoke about individual unconscious, thoughts, emotions, memories unknown to us, and based on our individual experience. Repressed content ends up here, things we may not have been able to tolerate when it happened. That's psyche. And then he introduced us to the concept of the collective unconscious, innate ancestral information unknown to us, based on inherited memory and experiences of the culture that we are born into. This is not based on our individual experiences, but rather a lineage of collective ones. Jungian analyst James Hollis says of archetypes, quote, the psyche has an apparent desire to render a raw flux of atoms intelligible and meaningful by sorting them into patterns. These patterns themselves form patterns. That is, archetypes create primal forms, which are then filled with the contents unique to a particular culture, a particular artist, or particular dreamer. Now, one of the reasons I call this podcast one about archetypes or archetypal instincts is because in my years of working on The Hungry Feminine, I've had my suspicions validated that the word feminine is deeply off-putting to most people. (laughs) And if not off-putting, it conjures a pause. Humans of all genders take it literally. 
They equate it to women. They equate it to dainty, effeminate behaviors. And so then they either disregard it or assume that it's not for them. And that reveals a whole other layer of issues that I'm not entirely equipped to address. Certainly not right in this moment on this episode. So instead, I've spent the last seven years repeating myself over and over again that the feminine does not refer to gender or the gender norms that we have come to staunchly socialize. But man, are we so governed by them that we cannot deliteralize any damn thing? But instead, it's about the archetypal feminine. It's about the patterns of an archetypal symbol and what it reflects back about our individual and collective psyches. I view feminine and masculine as archetypal umbrellas. They themselves don't just take one primal form, as Hollis says, but they more broadly hold the patterns and characteristics of the archetypes within them, like the varying mother and father archetypes, queen and king, and so on. In my opinion... Our issue with finding security in literalizing things is a direct reflection of the hold the masculine has over us socially and therefore individually and then deeply psychologically. Our individual psychologies are informed by the social conditioning that we undergo consciously and unconsciously. It's survival. That's belonging. We can't be too outside of the box if these are the social norms and we want to be included. And so everything that we're taught and conditioned to do creates this deep uncomfortability, a deep distrust, or a deep disbelief in anything that is not literal, concrete, measurable, tangible, linear, empirical. Don't get me wrong, those measurements are valuable, of course. Of course, my goal is always to allow the masculine and feminine to work together, not to have one triumph over the other. That's a very masculine shadow dominance thinking. And we're not here for that. We're here to make room for the other half. The patterns, the symbols, the characteristics, and the methods that have long been shut down in the masculine's domination. The feminine is where we find the curiosity, the ability to let things be what they are, and use our intuition, our imagination, our unconscious selves to let symbols and images move us, reflect us, become us, without literalizing them. But because we've been developed by the masculine, at least in Western cultures, we generally have a hard time with this, even if we value the feminine. To deepen our understanding of the impact of this, and therefore where we can maybe focus some of our reparative energy, here's what Jungian analyst Marion Woodman has said about the concretization of things, the killing of spirit, by turning it into material projections so that we can calculate it, dominate it, starve it, and steal from it. She says, quote, The confusion of spirit and body is quite understandable in a culture where spirit is concretized in magnificent skyscrapers, where cathedrals have become museums for tourists, where women flesh devil are associated, and nature is raped for any deplorable excuse. Dieting with fierce willpower is the masculine root. Dieting with love of her own nature is the feminine. Her only real hope is to care for her own body and experience it as the vessel through which herself may be born. End quote. So at the end there, she's saying that material serves the purpose of holding spirit. But if instead we project spirit onto material and then worship the material, we've killed the spirit. We've killed all of it. Woodman has also talked about concretizing spirit by consuming material and worshiping objects of addiction, saying, quote, instead of understanding the human longing for spirit symbolically, people interpret it concretely and they start to drink alcohol which is the concretization of that longing, end quote. 
And so many of these things are happening in our daily lives. They're happening in our moments where we're not feeling very strong and resourced and clear to be able to kind of maybe zoom out a little bit and ask ourselves what we're doing and why we're pulled to this thing, why we feel this compulsive energy around engaging in this material thing. But this is so rich and so deep, and it's worth pausing and reflecting on. Woodman also says, quote, we are not animals only, and we are not gods only. Somehow there has to be a bridge between the animal and the divine within, and that is the symbol. Children understand this. They love fairy tales, for example. But in our culture, these are taken away from them very early on. The world of imagination is repressed, and the soul is left crying, end quote. Which is when we divert that suffering into material consumption or domination, clarifying that imagination is a trait of the feminine light, while consumption and domination are traits of the masculine shadow. So we just keep having these knee-jerk reactions to return to the masculine time and time again, consciously, unconsciously. We have only found ways of coping that keep us repressing the longing for what is inherently feminine. And that repression only makes the masculine shadow hold over us stronger. We're in a cycle. We can't get out of it. I've said before, as part of my feminine isn't about gender speech, that I don't seek to eradicate the masculine by encouraging the feminine because the feminine has a shadow too. I did a whole two-part episode about this on the podcast last season. And I've said that without the masculine keeping the feminine in check, that shadow will emerge and infiltrate just the same as the masculine unchecked by the feminine has. As Woodman says, we are not just animal, material, and we are not just God, soul. We are both. And we have to hold both, honor both, and bridge both together so that they can have a relationship within us that meets the whole of our needs and desires. Woodman says symbol is that bridge. Archetypes are patterns of symbols, and they give us characters, those primal forms that Hollis spoke about earlier. That can be all too tempting to literalize and become the hero, the jester, the mother, the lover, the villain. When we witness archetypes within the people before us, it becomes a cinch to project onto them and hold that person accountable for what we'd expect of the archetype. Then we may experience some kind of distress when a human being inevitably cannot indefinitely embody an archetype literally. And without any consciousness of this, we will make that distress their fault and their problem rather than taking it back and owning it for what of it is ours and how we can actually use that to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves, not condemn us instead, but not condemn anybody. Just allow it to be alive. Allow it to be a symbol. Here's an example, which I don't want to get into the politics of it, but I personally find myself very compelled by the, by the fact that I'm getting to live through an era of the British monarchy where it is being spun on its head. Archetype, archetype, archetype. Prince Harry exiting the royal family, however painful on the family end of things, it is so rich on the business end of things. Whenever he and Meghan talk about the firm, they're essentially talking about the system that upholds the use of human beings as living archetypes. And even worse, archetypes that were literalized because of birthright, not the patterns of symbols themselves. So there's something people are being forced into these primal forms and then condemned when they don't behave the way that the primal form should. 
So Prince Harry is a really great example of what happens when a human being values their human beingness more than they do the symbols that they are supposed to represent just by existing. He was imprisoned by the archetype that was bestowed onto him. And humans can't entirely just be one archetype and nothing else, not without consequence at least. The king, the soldier, the hero, the servant, the rebel, the martyr, all of these are ways of understanding our complexities as human, both primal form and spirit, because the primal form is a symbol, not literal. But we're never just one. And what we see with the Harry and Meghan thing is that a lot of British people have identified themselves through these human archetypes, the archetypes played by the British royal family. They have literalized their British patriotism and their identity through these human beings that they don't know just because they play these archetypal roles. So their identification as British people now depends on the family members continuing to play those archetypal roles, which is why they're so angry at Harry for letting Yoko break up the band or whatever they've convinced themselves it is to justify their anger. Meghan didn't pull Harry from this archetype. Harry never wanted to be this archetype. We always knew that, and once he saw what harm the expectation of this did to his wife, to his family, he finally found the inspiration, and maybe didn't have a lot of choices, to leave it. And so that's an extreme version, but it's its own symbol of what we do when we try to like trap people, or ourselves, inside of an archetype. Simply because you've expressed some of those patterns, simply because that's the role you're supposed to play in the dynamic that you've walked right into... The system, the family system, the political system, the cultural system, whatever, whatever level of system, that can't be maintained forever. We're human beings. We ebb and flow. The ever-evolving human in us, the soul that is alive and moving, reaching desires and then awakening to new desires, does not want to be contained in one character, one primal form, one set of symbolic patterns, one archetype. That's not the natural way of being human. And it requires great repression in order to do so. Right? Feed the Feminine is about acknowledging what's being repressed and finding new ways of being in relationship with it, while also healing what parts of us get wounded when we repress them. Think about what you're telling those parts of yourself when you repress them in service to another archetype or behavior accepted by masculine society. You're telling those parts of you that they're not good enough, that they're not valuable, that they're harmful to you, when really the harm is caused by repressing the thing not the thing itself. Repressing the part, not the part itself. James Hollis again, meaningless inhibits fullness of life and is therefore equivalent to illness. Jung suggested our deepest need is for a sense of spiritual or psychic locus, by which he means a sense of belonging to a superordinate reality, a perspective on one's place in a larger scheme of things, a confirmation of one's role, task, and purpose in striding this planet. End quote. Our duty is to parse out the task itself from the confirmation of the task. That this spiritual or psychic locus can work in tandem with, but not literally replace. The value in understanding ourselves through archetypes is similar to discovering what our personal mythology is. For one thing, it gives our experiences meaning on a larger scale, contextualizing us among human history, human storytelling, and the mythical realm that most of us believe in, even if we call it by some other name. It universalizes our experience. It also gives us the opportunity to evolve without having to do what feels like manual labor on ourselves. 
In other words, have you ever watched a movie with obvious archetypes, a fairy tale, a Star Wars movie, a Harry Potter movie? And did you see yourself in one particular character or a couple of characters, even if on some level you have nothing in common with that character? Have you ever learned the moral of a story through that character or the fairy tale that you didn't quite know how it fit into your life because it was about some fantastical realm that you don't actually live in, and yet this moral resonated with you and became something you could call back on when your gut reminded you about it? Have you ever loved a piece of art so much, something that moved you deeply? And maybe you became frustrated when somebody tried to talk about it, over-explain this art, put words to it, put it in a box in some sense. It felt as though maybe they were killing it, killing something that was alive about it. That's what I'm talking about when I say literalization kills metaphor. We are capable of understanding metaphor deeply, just not in the way our conscious ego mind is used to being rewarded for understanding things. But there's an invitation to let them be what they are. That's the dominance of the masculine. But here's the invitation to just let them be what they are. You've been the villain. In some moment in your life, you've acted in a way that aligns with the villain patterns. You've probably done the same for the hero, and maybe the jester, and maybe the wounded child, and maybe the vampire, and maybe the princess, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe. But you didn't become them literally by dressing the part and calling yourself by a new title, much like the royal family has to so the reason my initial question is flawed is because you can't become archetypes otherwise you would deaden something in that process and you might be trying to (laughs) become an archetype and maybe that's the cause of your suffering right now and so instead we may wonder what can you learn about yourself and forgive in yourself and expand in yourself and express in yourself and awaken in yourself from the archetypal energy you've experienced, the archetypes that have given you insight into something deeper than words and personalities and ego interpretations can go? What characters call to you and what might you be able to glean about yourself from that pattern of attraction? What tools might you be able to use that you never thought about before? Because maybe you never saw yourself as this archetype. How can you lighten the pressure you put on yourself and the negative core beliefs that tell you your penchant for aligning with certain archetypal patterns makes you bad? Instead of seeing it as something deeper that you're plugged into, something that's bigger than all of us and is okay if you can find the meaning in it. These are some better questions to ask that would be too long for an episode title. So I went with the flawed question. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to wrap it up here because I've already been talking for way too long. And these are supposed to be short episodes. So (laughs) stay tuned for more this season on this topic and uh, others. And if you're located in California and interested in doing that work with me, you can head on over to thehungryfeminine.com where you'll find some information on how to get started. You can also find previous and upcoming podcast episodes uh, there, thehungryfeminine.com slash backslash podcast. Or you can follow along on Instagram at both the hungry feminine and feed the feminine. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>